All right, so we're doing this series uh, called Startled by Grace. Um, there's this little kind of tagline, waking up to the very good news. And I just want to remind you guys, there's a reason we titled it this way. Um, it really has two, two driving kind of points behind this series. One is that we would just have a fresh reminder of how awesome God's grace is. That we wouldn't just take it for granted as one of those Bible words that we kind of think we know and we just move beyond it. But that we would have a fresh sense, awareness of God's grace in our lives and the, the massive role that it plays. But the second reason that we named it this is this idea that we would daily live in God's grace. That every day I would wake up and realize God's hand is on my life and he's with me today. I'm not alone. And what, the things I'm going to face today, I have what I need because of the grace of God. And that we could live daily like that. And so it's with that heart in mind, this morning very specifically, I'm calling this sermon Daily Grace. Because we're going to see a picture of this in the life of Elijah and what's taking place here in his life. Um, as we continue forward in this series, I'm not exactly sure how many more weeks we're going to go five or six weeks maybe, we'll kind of see. Um, but we're going to be looking at stories in Scripture of just specific people and how grace operate in their lives in different circumstances of life. We're also going to hear from other members of our body, similar to what Manuel did last Sunday, other members in this church that are going to share just their personal stories of how God's grace has operated in their lives. And so my, my prayer is that we're going to be really encouraged along the way as we continue this. So, here we go. I want to set the scene for you. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17. Other than maybe briefly mentioning another verse, we're going to pretty much camp out right here in this story um, and see what it has to show us. And so as you're, if you want to turn there in your own Bible, you can do that. We'll have the scriptures on the screen. But I want to set the scene for you, first of all. So God's people, Israel, they are in this time of the kings now. We've moved past King David and King Solomon. There's been turmoil in Israel. There's been a split. Um, they're kind of split into two kingdoms now. There's Judah and there's Israel. And the particular king that is on the throne is King Ahab. Anybody familiar with King Ahab? Even if you don't know the story, you might have heard that name. Um, he was a, a, a wicked king and he's He's really well known for his wife. Anybody know King Ahab's wife's name? Jezebel. Jezebel. We're all very familiar with Jezebel. So to set this scene, King Ahab is on the throne, and this is really the first story of what starts to take place once he becomes king. Um, but the, the tone has not been good. He's become the king, and he's immediately worshiping other gods, setting up temples to other gods in Israel, he even goes outside of Israel and marries Jezebel. She is not Jewish. He goes outside of God's people and marries um, the daughter of the king of Sidon. And I want you to remember that because that directly connects to our story this morning. So he marries the daughter of the king of Sidon and brings her in and she's wicked. And um, this all kind of gets summed up just a couple verses before our story in, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, when the scripture just puts it like this, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. How would you like to have that on your tombstone? 
Here's what I could say about this guy. He really got God pretty angry, kind of more than anybody else that had ever been around. I mean, what a statement. But do you have a picture of like who's running things? Like there, there's times where I just reflect on our country and go, man, we're a mess on a lot of levels. But like their king, they're saying this guy is provoking God to anger more than anyone who's ever existed. Can you imagine living in those conditions? Things are bad. And things are so bad that when Elijah shows up on the scene, and he's the next character we need to be aware of, this is Elijah the prophet. Now I love this. His very name communicates so much about him. His name means the Lord is my God or Yahweh, that kind of national name of God, that personal special name of God that Israel had. Yahweh is my God. See, he's, his very name communicates the Lord, this great glorious God. It, he, there's this an awareness of how incredible and unique God is, but it's also personal. He's my God. I know him. I walk with him. I believe in him. And that's who Elijah was. He believed in this great, majestic, glorious God. And that was his personal God that he knew and he walked with. And so that's the prophet Elijah. And he's going to show up on the scene with some bad news. And then a little bit into this story, we're going to come across a woman who's simply called the widow. We just, we just know the town that she's from. She's this unnamed widow with a son. Um, but she is from the town of Zarephath, which is a town in Sidon. She's, a, she's of the same people as Jezebel. She lives in that kingdom. And so we're going to see Elijah get called there. So here we go. Let's pick up the story. Elijah shows up to tell this wicked king what's about to take place. And very simply, about halfway into verse 1, of 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah walks in, he says to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. They are about to go through such a severe drought, there's not even going to be dew on the grass in the morning which eventually would mean there would not be any dew on the dirt in the morning. Y'all tracking? This is a, a, a serious, severe drought. It's amazing how often in Scripture when we look at the stories of God's grace showing up, it shows up in the midst of something really hard. God's grace is connected to hard seasons very often. We looked at that in the story of Noah. God was going to send too much water in that story. In this story, he's not sending any. There's going to be a drought. And so immediately going out from there, Elijah leaves the king's presence and God tells Elijah to go live by a brook. And so in the midst of this drought, here's what God is going to do. He's going to provide for Elijah as he's hiding out near this brook. And here's what transpires. Verse 6 kind of encapsulates it for us. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And so the first thing we see is this faithful guy who trusts the living God, who knows him personally as his king, who's willing to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. But notice Elijah finds himself in the same place everybody else is in. He's in the place where the drought is happening. 
But in the midst of the drought, God provides daily for what he needs. Notice God didn't say, hey, I'm going I'm to pack you up with three months worth of provisions. And you're going to take those with you and then ration them out over the next few months. He just says, go live by that brook and I'll take care of you. I mean, imagine, he's just relying on birds bringing him food. He's in hiding. He just told the the most wicked king ever, there's going to be a drought. And unless I say it's going to rain, it's not going to rain. You better believe he's in hiding now, trying to survive. So he has enemies. There's a drought going on. And the only promise he has is that maybe this evening, that bird's going to show up again and bring me some food. But day after day after day, God provided what he needed that day. Now, that just sounds like this nice, sweet story. That's great. But, you know, we got a bunch of students in the room. We just acknowledge this. Imagine I told you, like, the game plan for your life after all your hard work, graduating from college, you're just going to go live in a tent by the creek and just wait, and food will come your way. (laughs) Would you give that advice to anyone? Would you follow that advice if I gave it to you this morning? It's okay to say, no way, Jake. No way. Of course not. Like you would never, like I feel like sometimes we read these stories and we act like it's just this little bedtime story. This is real life. This guy had to walk in before the most wicked king and say, it's not going to rain because of what's been happening around here. There's going to be a drought. And now I'm going to live with enemies and in the wilderness and I'm going to hope that food arrives at my doorstep every day. But when we walk with God, we can trust that he will day by day, moment by moment, give us what we need. In fact, I actually think that that's God's preferred way of doing things. In fact, that's not just my opinion. Jesus kind of said that, right? Don't be anxious for what? Anything. But even specifically, for what day? Tomorrow. Worry about today. Live in today, and God will give you the grace that you need for today. When we say God is present, and then we make that a vague concept, we're missing the point. God is present. When I'm living in the moment, in the reality of the moment, He is right there, present with me. That's where grace comes from. If I just vaguely have this concept that God is near, but I'm trudging through my days on my own trying to figure it out, I'm missing the daily present grace of God that's available to provide for what I need. And so all the circumstances didn't necessarily change around him, but in the midst of those hard circumstances, God provided. Cool. So that's the end of the story, right? Famine, brook, ravens bringing food, daily grace, Elijah's good. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in your walk with God, but just when you think things are getting comfortable and settled, life has a way of throwing us some curveballs and some things change. And so look what happens. It's the next verse. (laughs) After after days of, of him being provided for, it doesn't say how long. Maybe it's been weeks, months, a year. I don't know. But in verse seven, it just tells us after a while. 
And after a while, the brook dried up because there's a drought. Because there was no rain in the land. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, Jezebel's hometown, people who don't believe in the God of Israel, and dwell there. Leave the safe place where you've been with the ravens bringing you food and the beautiful brook coming by. That's all dried up. And and to make matters worse, you're going to go into enemy territory. It gets even harder than that. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Elijah, an able-bodied man. I want you to go and ask a widow to help you out in the land of your enemies. Notice how God's grace operates. The brook dries up and God tells him to move on. Move on to the land of your enemy. Go ask the widow during a drought to feed you. I mean, that takes some, not only some humility, but like the gall to show up in a drought and ask a widow who's just scraping by to add you on to her list of people to take care of? And by the way, she lives in the country of your enemy? What if she turns you in and says, hey, he's right here. Here's Elijah. Come get him. He had the arrogance to ask me for food. He's the one that made this problem. Think about this. Here's here's what I think we need to understand about God's grace. And this this is a hard thing to receive. It has been a hard thing for me to receive in my life. It is actually a component of God's grace that he will not let us get stagnant. He loves us too much to leave us in the place of stagnation and comfort. And if we're willing to see those moments as his hand of grace calling us into something new, we can experience something miraculous. And we're about to see something incredible that Elijah is able to experience because he accepted this as a part of God's hand of grace. And so God loved him too much to leave him there. And what's interesting is so often the place that we're most desperate to stay away from is the very place where we're going to find God's grace. The very thing I don't want to face, the very decision that seems so scary, it's right on the other side of that that the miraculous work of God's power and his presence and his grace shows up. I've seen this in my life. I'll talk about, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep going. So, brook dries up. God calls him to a new place, the land of his enemy. Elijah goes and he meets the widow. 1 Kings 17, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city... Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Well, that was just too much. She was willing to get him the water, but she's like, really? Bread too? Verse 12, And she said to him, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing to bake, or I have nothing that's baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
This is called going from bad to worse. God has called Elijah into a place that is desolate. Imagine walking into a town. We got to get ourselves in the perspective of this time frame. The city gate is where life and activity and people are gathered. It's where you would come. It's the water cooler. It's like, that's not even a real thing anymore, is it? I don't know. Coffee pot? You gather around the coffee pot in an office? I don't know what you gather around anymore. I don't know. You just find each other in the hall somewhere, I guess. Anyway, it's the, pl- it's the social place. It's where life and vitality and activity are happening in the city. And he comes in, and there's just tumbleweeds rolling across the ground. And the only thing he sees in the city center is this one widow gathering sticks. This is a desperate, desolate place. And he's called to an outsider. He sees a widow alone, rejected, not even of Israel. And it's in this desolate place with this outsider who's desperate that God calls Elijah. This is how God's grace works. God's grace shows up in the most desperate situations. The people that are the most hungry and the most in need. This is what Jesus was about. He went to the last, the least, and the lost. He went to the outsiders who were in need. This is God's heart. And so Elijah shows up, and now he's going to extend an invitation for grace. Notice what happens next, verse 13. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be emptied until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. Notice Elijah's invitation. It's an invitation of grace that offers hope and requires faith. He offers hope and it requires faith. You're going to have to take a risk. Will you make me a cake first? The invitation of God's grace, awesome, often, in fact, I would even go so far as to say always, because God tells us that His grace is a gift and that we receive it through faith. Grace and faith are directly connected to one another. And this woman, think about this woman for a minute. We've been focused on Elijah a little bit, but think about her perspective for a moment. She's in a desolate place. She's preparing to die. She is facing reality. She's not pretending. She is facing reality. I've got this much left to eat and there is nothing left. We're going to go have our last meal and we're going to waste away. Desperate, desolate, alone, an outsider. Think about this for a minute. She's not even named in the story. She's not even named. I mean, how relatable is that? How often in my life have I felt like nobody even sees where I'm at, what I'm going through? I don't even know if God sees me. I just feel like this unnamed, unknown outsider that God's totally unaware of. He's forgotten me. And God says, no, in the midst of that kind of desperation, my grace is present and available. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Check out this lady, man. It's incredible. It's incredible. Look at her. She has faith. 
How do I know that? Because of her action. 1 Kings 17, verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, and neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Think about this for a minute. Because of the boldness and audacity of Elijah, and because of the courage and faith of this unnamed widow, three people at least, because it says her household. I don't know who else might have started going, hey, that's the lady with the food. But at least three people ate every day instead of just one. Are you getting the picture here? Elijah had everything he needed. He was comfortable. He had the river, the brook. He had the food he needed. Everything was good. And God said, I'm going to call you to step out of that comfort zone into something scarier and more difficult. But see, God's grace, he so longs to pour his grace into our life in such a way that we will take it to others. That we will be willing to risk and go to the uncomfortable places and reach out to the outsiders and share that grace with them. And when we do that, we get to all gather at the table together. It's more rich. It's more full. Listen, guys, I'm not saying this to brag about me at all. I've got a lot of shortcomings and failings, but I'm telling you, I've experienced this. I'm experiencing this in this town. It would have been easy to stay in Franklin with my family. I've been there for almost 20 years, had a great house, a great job. People knew me. My family was provided for. Life was good. We had a river and we had food every day. And we, we had to go to the unknown place. And it was scary and it was hard. You know what we've been able to do the last two Thanksgivings? We have had every random person in town that didn't have a place to go for Thanksgiving, didn't have a family member or their family, and we just gathered around a table and we got to eat together solely based on just the cool relationships that have happened as a result of us coming to Knoxville, people I would have never met. And both times I've just sat back and on oh, been like, this is awesome. We got a house full of people and we're enjoying God's presence and his grace. I've seen this in my life. I've also benefited from it because of what other people have done. I have been the outsider that has been welcomed into people's homes and felt loved and cared for and had a touch of God's grace because other people took a risk and took the plunge. This is, this is true. If we will let grace call us out of our comfort zone, we can enjoy this kind of shared grace with others. Man, it's a great place to be if we're willing to chance it. And notice the daily grace was present in both places. It was present here, right in the midst of the need, right in the midst of the drought. And then just when it became too comfortable, God said, okay, now we're going here. We're going to share this a little bit. I'm going to stretch you a little bit. And there was grace in the new place every day. The food didn't run out. It didn't run dry. And more people got invited in to share in it. What an awesome picture. That's not the end of the story. Because when we're walking through daily grace with the Lord, if we're honest, 
We know this to be true. We don't just stay in a perfect place. Tragedy often strikes. And it did in this story. Verse 17. After this, after this long period of many days of grace daily and food daily and everybody gathering at the table, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. How true that reaction is. How true that when tragedy strikes, where does my mind go? I blame myself. Maybe this is the consequences of the mistakes I've made, the poor decisions I've made, my sin and struggles. I blame other people around me. And ultimately, I'm pointing to God and saying, God, where are you in this tragedy? This is real. Y'all have probably heard me share this story before, but it, is, it was such a poignant moment in my life. This has never been more real to me than the night my daughter Abby was born. I'm going to try to briefly tell this story, but the night my daughter Abby was born, my daughter Abby has Down syndrome. We had no idea the whole time we were pregnant. The night she was born, after you know hours of labor and all of that, we get a call from my mom, who was watching Ashley and Emily, our other two. They were young and at home, and said, hey, Emily's running a really, really high fever. I'm bringing her to the hospital, to the emergency room. So my daughter Abby's just been born. We're exhausted, and now I'm going down two floors to the emergency room to meet my other daughter, Emily. I'm down there with her for a couple of hours. They're getting fluids in her. They're helping her fever calm down. Amy's up there by herself. Her mom kind of shows up to spend some time with her. We still don't know anything about Abby. Like, she was born and seemed healthy. We're good. I get in the car. I'm taking Emily back home now, getting late at night, maybe 9, 9.30 at night, heading back home to drop her back off with my mom. And meanwhile, my wife had been up there with her mother just hanging out, and the pediatrician shows up, our pediatrician. They normally come, like, the day after to kind of talk to you. It shows up. He's talking to her. She's going through all these things. Hey, we're going to get Abby up to Vanderbilt and run this test, and then we're going to check for this. And Amy's just kind of like, what are you talking about? And she runs through the list, and she goes, anyways, that's all the stuff that's typical for a child with Down syndrome. And he goes, what are, you, what are you talking about? And she thought one of the nurses had told us, and the nurses thought the delivering doctor had told us, and nobody had told us. So my wife's by herself finding out our third daughter has Down syndrome. We don't know anything about anything. I had never been around anybody with Down syndrome other than just really briefly, but I hadn't grown up around that. So I'm getting this phone call now as I'm exhausted and taking my other daughter who's sick back home, and I get this phone call from my wife, and I'll never forget getting home, laying Emily down to bed, and getting in the shower, and I did this. I began to think about my sins and my struggles. My, my mind went to, God, am I being punished? Is this because of me? I did that. Is my daughter like this because of me? My sins, my struggles. And then I got angry. I was using stronger words than the word anger. I got angry with God. For about 20, 30 minutes, we just did business, and it was basically just me going through this range of emotions. 
And thankfully, the Lord just kind of sat there with me through that range of emotions and just reminded me of his grace and his faithfulness and that this was not expected and it was a surprise, but that he was going to be present. And I remember coming back out of that and I looked at my mom and my sister had come over at that point. And I just looked at him and I said, it's going to be all right. I, I believe it's going to be all right. But that, those were words of faith. I didn't, I didn't feel that all the way. But I was just trusting that it was going to be okay. But see, this woman, when she's crying this out, when she's saying this, she's, she's acknowledging this desperate need. And Elijah, I love this, Elijah doesn't give the like, preacher, it's going to all be okay answer. Notice what happens next. Verse 19, Elijah said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Elijah's struggling too. He's not given the churchy answer. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. This wasn't an immediate miracle. He's crying out, God, do something. And he says, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Listen, we got to get real. Living by grace isn't about putting on a happy face. Living by grace is about living daily and honestly before God and praying real prayers. If it's a mess, say it's a mess. Don't pretend like it's okay. It's not okay. But call out to the God who loves and sees and tell him what's on your heart. Listen, this is what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't on the cross singing joy to the world. He wasn't. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he, he was doing more than just coming up with a sentence in the moment. He was putting into words everything he was carrying on your behalf and on mine. He was taking up the words of the psalmist David found in Psalm 22. This psalm is David crying out in his anguish, surrounded by his enemies. But it's the cry of all of the human condition. In the midst of that cry, Jesus relates to this kind of hurt and this kind of tragedy, and he verbalizes it. And I want to read through parts of this psalm. But if you're ever willing to be a homework person, I would encourage you to go home and read through Psalm 22 as the cry of our heart and as Jesus on our behalf. But I want to give you the flavor of this. Listen to this. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This is the words of the widow, of Elijah, of Jesus. The cry that we all have when moments of tragedy strike. It continues for several verses, and then there begins to be this turning point. And in verses 23 and 24, the psalmist says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. 
stand in awe of him. You see what he's doing? He's getting his eyes off himself and his tragedy, his condition. He's looking up. All you offspring of, of Israel, let's cry out. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted. Sorry, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. He says, God hears. He cares and he hears and he's aware. And then look what happens. Verse 26 and 27. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. There's hope. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. It's a reminder of the eternal hope that we have. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. There's honesty and crying out. Then there's purposing in our heart to praise and reflect on who he is and remember that he's present. And then there's pointing to this eternal hope because that God does hear us and he does care. And ultimately, it's going to be all right. That's how we hold on to grace by faith. And that same God who hears big picture, as it's talked about in Psalm 22, he heard in this story. Look at the next line after Elijah cries out that real, that honest, from his gut prayer. Verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Aren't you grateful that he listens when we cry out in tragedy? And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The grace of God is a daily grace that sees us through drought, it sees us through desolate places, and it sees us through tragedy. It's grace that's available in the moment but it's grace that's filled with hope for eternal redemption and salvation. Grace is always attached to resurrection life. We saw it in the story of Noah. We see it in this story this morning, and it's ultimately fulfilled in the story of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who by His grace not only cried out on our behalf, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But He rose again in resurrection power and life, victoriously, for us. If we died with him, we will be risen with him in glory. That's the gospel of grace. Let's live daily with that kind of grace in our lives. And when tragedy strikes, let's pray real, honest prayers, <coughs> trusting in the grace of God to see us through. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are ever present and that you love us. God, I thank you that you shake us out of the stupor of complacency at times. God, that you call us into adventure, loving and welcoming the desperate, the outsider, 
You call us to go and risk to desolate places, and yet your grace is present there. God, you do bring seasons of refreshing. A lot of this story involved really good stuff happening. Daily refreshing of the water and what got brought from the ravens. Daily feasts at the table with family and friends. God, we thank you even in the midst of tragedy. When we struggle through, did I do this? Did you do this? What's going on here? You just remind us of your goodness and the eternal hope that we have in you, that you redeem all things. God, we trust in your daily grace. Would you help us to live in that one day at a time? Jesus, it's by your power and your might that we pray this morning and by your power and your might that we live daily. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.